0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. It's the finale and I'm stoked because I have one of my biggest influences of all time on the show today, Nile Rodgers. I'm so stoked. I can't even I can't even put it into words. We started the season with Pat Metheny, we're ending with Nile Rodgers, two of my favorite guitar players of all time. I can't believe it. It's incredible. Well, I'm stoked too because it's the holiday season and I got to run a nice little special thanks to Teachable. I've got a guitar course out there that teaches rhythm guitar, lead guitar, how to practice, what to practice, how to get the most efficient use out of your practice. Some people have the problem of they'll sit down for an hour and they don't feel like they really got anything done when they practice guitar. This course, I am teaching you how to get the absolute most out of your practice time. When I was in college, I would practice several hours a day and I would feel like, ah, I'm not quite, I I don't feel like I'm actually getting better. So what I've done is I've developed a practice routine, several practice routines and techniques and just principles of practice that now when I sit down to practice, if I have 15 minutes or if I have an hour, I make sure that I feel like I've gotten efficient and proper use of my time and effort towards getting better at the guitar. That stuff is all on this course. It is normally 175 bucks. Right now, write this down. It's the code HOLIDAY79. The course is just 79 bucks. You get five and a half hours of lessons. I promise if you invest your time and money into this course, you will be a better player. Guarantee it. How about that? All right. Today on the show... We got Nile Rodgers. Like I said, one of the most influential guitar players of all time. Why? Because he basically was one of the first ambassadors for rhythm guitar. Now, my ears are already perked up cuz I'm a rhythm guitar ambassador myself. He's kind of responsible in my eyes for that sound of the chucking on the guitar. He's responsible for so much rhythm momentum and kind of making rhythm guitar hooks which is such a part of what i do now so it's incredible to have him because he's like the source okay that's one reason to have niall on even if it was just the guitar stuff but then also chic writing hits basically anytime you go to a wedding you are hearing several niall rogers productions or songs that he's written He's responsible for writing, producing with everybody from Daft Punk, David Bowie, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Madonna, Diana Ross, Mick Jagger, Peter Gabriel. The Halo 2 soundtrack? That's another one to even just have him on alone. You know how much Halo 2 I played in college? It's insane. Nile. You may know him from his famous guitar, which is called The Hitmaker, for obvious reasons. <laughs> It's like a 1960 Strat with I think a 59 neck or something we're gonna talk about it Niall has a auction coming up in a week or two and he's selling a bunch of stuff for the we are family Foundation which is a foundation that he has it's raising a bunch of money and there's some incredible things that are going up for auction he's gonna talk about it in the podcast you can look it up online but without further ado, Nile Rogers. This season of Wong Notes podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album. DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there, and that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team, and they'll do splits for... Your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties. This person gets 25%. This person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Niall, thank you so much for being with us today. An absolute treat to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, man.
0: It's great to have you. I love when I get to talk to another consummate rhythm guitar player and somebody who's been such a strong advocate for the guitar in pop music and also the role of the guitar playing parts, playing things that weave into the groove and also are iconic and the sort of thing that kind of has to be played if you play the song. Play
1: the song, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I bet that, that's kind of where I want to start is... Your approach, obviously it has to do with you having a producer's mindset and mentality, but your approach to the guitar in creating parts, like I'm talking about, that, that contribute to the groove, that contribute to the hooks of songs, but how to create parts that are iconic and just feel like they have to be played.
1: Yeah. So I compose on the guitar. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm doing string arrangements or any kind of orchestral arrangements, I do it on the guitar, but I have enough knowledge that I can understand that, you know, what role uh, that instrument would play. So in other words, if I'm writing a tuba part on the guitar, I know how it'll work. But if it feels right on the guitar to me, then I know that I can transcribe it for another instrument. Mm. It's just my instrument of choice. So I wind up trying to write hooky parts that make a lot of sense. I, I don't know if that sounds really circuitous or wacky, <laughs> but, but it, it really makes a huge amount of sense to me. It seems like, wait a minute, why would he write, write tuba parts on guitar? Because if they sound cool, I know how to write for the tuba, mm. uh, but I can write a part that sounds like a lick, if you will. So when I do orchestration, I try and make sure, and this is funny, this is gonna sound wacky. I try and make sure everybody has a part that's a good time, yeah. that they actually like playing, yeah. that they think like, if you pull my part out, the composition won't make sense. Mm. So that's, that's how I write. And it makes no difference whether it's uh, for piano, for strings, for horns, or whatever, for woodwinds. If you pull that part out of the record, or the composition it just is not quite there,
0: yeah, so, as a producer, as a guitar player, when you're doing that sort of thing, how do you know when you have enough things happening in the song enough enough things on the record, and like when do you subtract
1: so there's There's been some interesting stuff that's come to uh my knowledge lately, <laughs> so when I wrote the song for Sister Sledge called Thinking of You. For some reason, I, I wrote a horn part that when we made the record, I didn't use the horn part. Mm. And now um, a DJ uh, d has revived it because another great remixer uh, did his version and he used the horn part yeah. because he liked it. Dimitri from Paris. Yeah. So Dimitri put the horn part back in. And now that's become almost the default version that everybody knows because De Nice has become so huge during the pandemic. Yeah. So the part was the right part, but I think that at the time that I wrote it, it felt like, huh, because it was trumpet with harmon mute, it may have felt too jazzy yeah. for Sledge. And I was trying to portray them as these sort of very, very hip, Group of girls that were hot and blah 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 and into fashion, and they wouldn't necessarily have trumpet with harmon mute on their album.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. The, as a producer, you're thinking about how the artist comes across. You're thinking about how people think about what these instruments have to offer, like the, the role they play. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and 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 the public's perception of what this instrument or this type of thing brings to the table. What what does it make them feel viscerally? It's like, oh, this just kind of feels like jazz, because that's what people associate. I'm curious, nowadays, how do you feel people think about the guitar, and how can we continue to be good ambassadors for the guitar in pop music?
1: So so what I found that, what's really interesting is because People can do so much production uh, at their various workstations and they can, they can do guitar parts and, and everything. And, and, and the public doesn't miss it. So what I've done with most of the new records that I play on, believe it or not, is I play much jazzier parts than I normally would have played, like say 10 or 15 years ago, because when I, when I'm playing jazzier parts, they feel incredibly authentic. They mm. feel like you can't program those parts. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like the, the very first thing I ever did with Sam Smith and Disclosure, uh, we just wrote in like 10 or 15 minutes. And I started playing very West Montgomery style type of guitar. Yeah. And it was like, oh man, they jumped on it. It was like, whoa, we gotta get get down with this. And I was thinking to myself, You know, in a perfect world, this is the kind of guitar I would play. Mm. This is what I would do every day of my life. If somehow I can make the same living, somehow I could play to crowds of 50,000 people and they would like it or whatever. Yeah. and They jump around and dance while I'm playing octaves and, you know, and and sort of like shreddy type of solos. Yeah. Um, uh, But that's not the world i inherited or it's not the path that i've chosen sure so but in in my guitar collection that i that i'm auctioning you can see it's funny man talking to you right now i realize that that collection is a perfect snapshot of who i am as a person yeah when you see the the plethora of jazz guitars the amount of arch top guitars in there you know yeah you know, guitars from the thirties and the twenties and the forties and D'Angelico, the the cristo Stella's and things like that. And, um, you, you know, I, I just realized that well, that's really who I am as a person. Mm. I'm really that well-rounded guy. And if I could in fact live that life of playing all those instruments and you know, and still make the living that I make, I would certainly do that because it's very rewarding. Now, don't get me wrong. There's almost nothing as wonderful as playing Ah, Freak Out and Seeing the Whole Place Go Banana. Yeah. (laughs) But if I could play um, you know, like all of my chic instrumentals and things like that, and some of my video game music, and yeah, and the whole crowd would jump up and down and scream and start singing the, the theme to Halo or something. <laughs> I, would, I would do that too.
0: I tell you what, <laughs> I grew up playing Halo. I I would freak out watching you play the Halo theme. All right,
1: say <laughs> 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 okay, ladies and gentlemen, here comes the moldner mix. Oh, Dude,
0: I would be in. I would be in. <laughs> or if I could play the game on a large theater screen while you're scoring it live, that would be my dream. <laughs> Believe me,
1: I'd I'd have a blast too. But you know, the, the thing is, is that so I'm I'm doing this this auction, yeah, because. You know, my charity, we are Family Foundation. I watch these young people work on projects that are changing the world. Yeah. And music changed my world. Mm. The guitar changed my life. Everything that I, you know, when I stand back uh, and I look at the items that I'm getting rid of or you know, I don't even want to look at it like that, sure maybe these are these are things that'll enrich another person's life, yes. either they're a great musician or a, a person that just goes "Wow." I got the guitar that played the solo on Madonna's "Dress You Up in My Love." Yeah. Oh man, I got the guitar that played the dee 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 in "China Girl." Yeah. Oh man, I got the guitar that Stevie Ray Vaughan played on um, on "Family Style" and that he played on one of the cuts, at least one of the cuts on uh, "Let's Dance." Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's just a cool thing. I might want to be the guy that if I were buying a guitar, like there's one guitar that's in the auction. And I honestly bought it um, because when I saw that everybody from ACDC had signed a guitar along with Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) and then I did the the history, I said, okay, this could have only come from two projects. There's no other way. And I said, how cool is that? You know, ACDC and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I don't even remember what I paid for it. I didn't even care. It was just, to me, the concept of that uh, Cause I'm a, a big movie freak and yeah. you know, I, I'm a media freak. yeah. So I, I like, you know, video games, movies, what have you. So just the fact that, that those two entities came together and signed a, a you know, an SG, which is what, one of the guitars that I started playing on in mm. the early days, uh, that was just sort of cool to me. And I think that what this collection offers people is a lot of those moments. Yeah. I actually started to try and connect the dots between the mythology of early instruments that got out in the marketplace yep. and the original owners and I was going to go on this big sort of like documentary type of trip cuz I'm looking in my locker and seeing all like 200 guitars. Yeah. And uh, I remember one of the first ones that I bought was somebody told me that it was owned by Chuck Berry, and I said, "Well, I've never seen Chuck Berry play a Zephyr Regent." Yeah. And I met his son about uh, six or seven years ago, and he comes on our tour bus. And I say, "Look, have you ever seen your dad play?" Yeah. I <laughs> <Now>, remember, <laughs> Chuck Berry's son at that point is uh, you know sixty years old or something. I'm saying, "Hey, man, have you ever seen your dad play a guitar like this?" And you gotta have to remember in the early days. Of rock and roll, all guitar players played arch top guitars. Mm-hmm. There were no solid body guitars. Yeah, that, that's what everybody played. So he, he said, "Oh yeah, I remember that kind of guitar," but he didn't keep it for a very long time. And I was thinking to myself, "Yeah, because it would have fed back." Yeah, and technology was changing, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't swear to it, but he also didn't deny it. And yeah. I was like, going, "Okay." That was good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. I, got, <laughs> I got one of Chuck Berry's guitars.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so many. The, I, you're bringing up these guitars. I have some questions regarding some of those things. But first off, I want to try to get dibs on one of those Hitmaker custom shops.
1: They're <laughs> you, you know what's great? is Every one of them is great. Yes. Yeah. Because what we did was we we looked at all of the things that could have possibly. Happened in 1959. Yeah. And when you go back to the Fender factory and there aren't very many people who were there then, but there were people who were second or third generation. Yeah. Who knew a lot about Leo's personality Mm -hmm. and things like that um, because we tried to make sense of something that didn't make sense. And all you could do is just sort of forensically try and go backwards and say, "Yeah, why does this one guitar, this is only one, why is there only this one? And I can't find another one like it. Yeah. And you just try and figure out what the most logical thing is. So when we started to remake a custom shop version of it, because my original hit maker is so drastically different than the Fender Stratocaster specs of today, yep, they almost couldn't bring themselves to go that far. Yeah, so we kept going and we kept going. We're like, come, come on, guys, you got, you just gotta do it. The headstock's not gonna break off. You see, mine yeah. hasn't <laughs> been off. Um, you just gotta make it that thin. Mine is the lightest Strat in the world. Throw it up in the air.
0: Okay, this is what I want to clarify because I love that you're going down this road. I love hearing it straight from your mouth because, so I have a signature Fender Stratocaster that I put out this year. Mm-hmm. And we did the project and I remember thinking, like, I don't know why, but I just, I want it to be a little thinner than this. I want the body a tiny bit small, Like for whatever reason, the rhythm guitar thing that I do, there's a certain thing within the transient there's a certain transient response when it's a little thinner. That's right. A little lighter and they're like, "Where did you come up with this?" I was just like, "I don't I have a hunch. Every every strat that feels a tiny bit smaller just feels right to me." And they're like, "Okay, I want you to keep going in this conversation and then we're going to talk when the project is over cuz we're going to tell you about something else that's completely independent." And they were telling me about you asking for the same thing and they were I remember the R&D team just being blown away like Why are Corey and Niall asking for the same exact thing? And they don't even know it. They don't even know that they're asking for the same stuff. But for whatever reason, that sort of thing works with a Stratocaster, with rhythm guitar. And I am so happy to hear you say this.
1: Hey, man, last night I was having, I don't want to sound like I'm name dropping, but last night I was having dinner with Joe Walsh. And he was like querying me hard, man. He was like all up in me, like, you know, Niall blah, 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 blah. How do you get that sound? How do you get that sound? I said, all right, Joe, dude, my guitar is this. He said, I already figured that part out. He said, but what's happening with your amp? What do you do? I said, well, Stevie Ray Vaughan gave me a PV Classic 50. Mm. He didn't Realize at the time that ever since I switched to solid body guitars, I had always been using tendon speakers, so even when we had to have the big loud amplifiers and I had a stun, I had the sun with the six ten yeah, after the sun, I wound up getting the i guess I forgot what it was called, maybe it was the vibralux or something like that I can't remember I'm not a big amp specialist like a two ten so, my- fender, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. right. It was the Vibralux. So I had two two Vibraluxes that I would, uh, you know, wire in series. And that was the sound for a bit. So I wound up having four tens. And so Joe Walsh, at the end of our dinner, he just said to me, he said, man, you know what? He said, that's what people don't get that it's that sound, those transients that cuts through when you're playing that kind of rhythm guitar. And that's where that funky thing comes from. I said, yeah, it's something I learned really early because I went from big um, arch-top jazz guitars and the sound difference right away as soon as I switched to that, that little Fender, which, believe me, I didn't know anything about Strats. Yeah. Except jimmy played one sure <laughs> and i wanted that yeah of and, course um, so but i didn't know anything about the specs i didn't know anything about anything it's just that jimmy played one and it was antique white the one that i got was sunburst i worked at a guitar shop i took the color off repainted it myself i did my finish i only put one coat of lacquer on it yeah and and that's it because i wanted it to be old right away, even though it was pretty old. Sure. I bought it in 1973 and it was a 1959 or 60. And, and that's it. It's been the same strat ever since, other than the fact that you know I made it into a Frankenstrat by putting the you know the chrome pick guard on it. Yeah. And and the you know and the locking uh machines and things like that. But other than that, the pickups are just whatever came in a 59 Strat. Of course. Uh, oh, and actually, the reason why we figured that it was a 60 is because my Strat was actually shielded. But I said, you know, look, Fender is a pretty damn liberal place in 59. So they figured that it was a 59 neck because of the the, 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 the Mary Kay um. The next, and then they, I mean, all sorts of theories, yeah, start yeah, yeah. popping up, <laughs> up out, you know, that maybe because of this, maybe because of that. And I said, But Leo's the kind of guy, if he saw a screw on the ground, he'd pick it up and figure out what thing to stick it in, even yeah. if it didn't go in there, yeah. So, you easily buy an amplifier that had 12 screws and it was only supposed to have 11 because <laughs> he was not it. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it's just that there was probably some type of form and schematic design to the guts and what have you, what have you. But there was also a lot of these guys taking these guitars home and working on them in their garages. Yeah. So I just got some freak of nature Strat and then I, you know, made it into more of a Frankenstrat. Totally. And it's been that way ever since 1973. So,
0: Talking amps, ten inch speakers, definitely a a transient thing that that feels different than twelves. I'm curious. So I come, I'm from Minneapolis, so I'm from the Paisley Park school of mm-hmm. of things, and yeah. a lot of that is the DI, yeah, direct like just guitar into the console. So when you were recording all the big chic hits, all the all the stuff that you produced, when did you decide to go DI with the guitar versus the amp. And what does that sound like? How do you characterize that sound to somebody who hasn't tried that yet? Like how would you encourage
1: somebody to try that? I, I went DI on my very first album as Chic. When once once we started doing records where we were the people in control. Yeah. Uh and this was what I learned from Bob Clearmountain. Bob Clearmountain was, I, I would almost say, religious about bass and guitar being di uh really oh my god that was like this is what bass sounds like and this is what guitar sounds like
0: i love that i love that
1: and and bob clear mountain was a a great teacher for me because that became the foundation of all my records yeah bass sounds like this and guitar sounds like that yeah everything else we can start to fool around with And that was so important for me because when Bernard, my partner, my former partner, and I started playing, the essence of the record was right there with just the two of us playing in the studio. And Clear Mountain knew that, and he locked into that, and we just started to understand who we were. So he was just saying, he sees it, and we started saying, oh, we now see what you see, and we ain't ever gonna mess with that ever that's it so to this very day uh the last record i cut was two days ago uh with daddy yankee yeah and uh and his engineer went uh so what kind of amp would you like me to use we're at sony studios in miami i said oh di he said really i said yeah and then you guys do whatever you hear yeah (laughs) i love that And we started playing and the guy went sounds like no running i said there you go exactly exactly (laughs)
0: All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. You brought up Bernard and of course your guys' partnership, your, your musicality with each other, the way you guys weave parts. Like you're saying, I, I mean, now I'm understanding more the way you're thinking as an orchestrator. But there's something interesting in your records especially when you're playing with Bernard where the guitar part and the bass part, they're so locked. They're so connected. Sometimes they're very different, but they leave space for each other. Sometimes they're very different. And then all of a sudden they line up and then they go apart and then they line up and then right. they go apart. How much intentionality did you guys have with that? And how much was that just your innate ability to listen to each other and kind of find like kind of have a, like a brain lock where you just knew where each other were going.
1: I, I think it was, I would say it was 50-50. A lot of it... So here's our secret. We never... uh, I I would say 99% of the time, all of our... Even though all of the songs say written and produced by Bernard Edwards and Al Rogers, um, 99% of the time, we started the songs individually. Mm. And we'd come together and say, this is the idea that I have. Yeah. And typically what we would do is we respected the other person's idea so much that what we did is we copied that idea. So this is how a chic record started. So whoever came up with the lick, as we recall, because we always started with some kind of catchy lick. Mm -hmm. So whoever came up with that lick, the other person would copy that lick exactly. And then you'd veer off and found, and you'd veer off until you'd find a complimentary lick that made the original lick sound better.
0: Mm.
1: that's our formula. We always copied each other exactly. So when I wrote Good Times and I was playing Bernard came in and first started playing boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. And he was doing that for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really lifting my skirt. I was like, ah, that's cool, but, you know, whatever. Because he was actually late to work that particular day. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting in the studio with me and um, and the band had already played it. It was one of those days where I think he was out drinking a little too late the night before. <laughs> so when he, sh- when he showed up, we already had our parts and everybody was... Complimenting me, right there. If you listen yeah. to good times, you hear the piano goes boom, 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 boom. Most people don't know that mm-hmm. they the piano and I are playing the exact same part. So when Bernard came in and he's now playing the same part, it's like, wait a minute, dude! Way too many people playing the same part. So I just screamed to him, walk. Now, we had tried walking bass lines on a gazillion songs before, and, you know, some worked and some didn't. But somehow this day, the magic happened. And boy, that bass line happened instantaneously. It just was like, boom, 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 boom. And then he jumps to the four chord before we get to the four chord. And that jumping to the four was like, holy like damn what whoa so we didn't change our parts to go bum 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 yeah you don't do that yeah our rappers delight they do that yeah we don't do that. <laughs> we stay on the one we stay on the one bernard jumps to the floor and then we come right behind him yeah and, and it was like it was genius i remember bob clear mountain going how the hell did you think of that? (laughs) People don't realize the way he thought of it is because we had tried it a million times before yeah, and it didn't work. That day, it worked.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I love that. So you're talking about your guitar part there. Again, another iconic guitar part. One that like, you know, I've played hundreds of times and every time I play that song, I got to play the same thing every time, which is incredible. Now, (laughs) I'm curious... It, from your vantage point, you've seen a lot over the, a lot of decades, a lot of different types of guitar players. You've been on hits spanning decades. Your, and I'm, I'm curious, as a fellow rhythm guitar player, rhythm guitar advocate, in your eyes, we can get as specific as you want. We could talk the chucking thing, we could talk bubble, any of that. But I'm just curious, just rhythm guitar in general, where do you think people get it right and where do people get it wrong?
1: Wow, that's that's totally not for me to say because I, I, look, I've gotten it. Okay, man, you, you know this world and you will get where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, the musician's world, the thing that determines right from wrong is success, is how, mm you know, how high you made it on the charts, how much you sold. As a composer, we know in our hearts that we feel good about something. We don't want to release stuff that we think is bullshit. Like, why would you do that? Like, you know, like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So most of the time we release what we think is right. It's only um, the result. And I don't even say it's the public. Because I believe that there are many forces that uh, are out of our control that determines whether our records are going to be hits or not. It's what I always call um, alignment. There's something that happens outside of us that aligns and allows Let's Dance to be a hit. Mm -hmm. David Bowie was the genius that he had always been before he and I came together and did Let's Dance. But for some reason, the stars hadn't aligned. When we got together, it was the perfect alignment, the perfect time. He had been dropped from one label. No, no, no. You know, maybe it was a new president wanting to make a name for himself. Whatever, whatever, whatever. But it had nothing to do with us. We did our best work and put it out there. And and it it happened to work. Um, Because the truth is, is that if we could make every record work like that, everybody would. yeah totally. uh, you, you you just do what you feel is right. So I would never say that it's the wrong part. It may not be the part I choose uh, because I have a different philosophy when it comes to composition. I you know, people don't realize that when they listen to We are Family and they hear the piano go boom, Dun, 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 dun. and they hear the octaves dun, 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 dun. well that comes from a guitar part my guitar part is playing yeah. but it's not as distinctive because in the piano, is actually octaves going yeah and the, the voice leading the voice leading is all in octaves mm-hmm. in my on my guitar the voice leading is basically in groups of six and um you y- you know so you get a harmonic uh passage yeah um as opposed to um just a melodic passage you get a full um chord as i'm playing the Na- ding 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 dun, 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 dun. yeah, because it's cool it's funky yeah. and it's cool. and i can play it by myself yeah <laughs> i love that <laughs> so um you know, there's just different approaches to uh, rhythm guitar playing, and my concept is that um, my rhythm guitar is always part of the hook. Yeah, always. Um, it doesn't make any difference if you go to um, like, like if you ever go to a chic show. I could start off every song. And as a matter of fact, I do a lot of times. And people know right away what it is. Yep. If it's, you know, if it's Modern Love and I go, de-do, 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 they, right away they go, ah, yeah. I know when to go out and I know when to stay in. Or, you know, I'll go, if we're lost in music, they know right away what it is. Or I'll play, ding no, no, notorious. Yeah. And poof, they know what the song is from the lick, China Girl. It's yeah. right there. Um, my licks are the hooks. If either they're ostensibly the major part of the hook, or they are companions to the major part of the hook but it's always in the hook mm-hmm. so whenever i'm working with an artist i always say let's start with the hook first and then we work backwards from there because yeah. if that's if that's the catchiest part of my guitar leg that's what i want to nail first yeah all the time i i and i tell every artist and you can check it doesn't make any difference whether it's Daft Punk or Daddy Yankee or Duran Duran or David. But I'm using all these now. with Diana, <laughs> <Rothman>. um, <laughs> they when they say they want to play a demo for me, I don't want to hear a demo. I'll write out the chart in the studio. Um, I don't need to hear it. I want to because what you may have played on your demo may not be what I think is the essential hook. Mm. But if I agree with it when I get there, then I'll say cool. But I'm trying to make the hook when I get in the studio. So, um, you know, you may have seen the Daft Punk films that they put out before the album dropped. Yeah. And they, you know, and they they get, you know, specifically they, you know, they asked me, hey, you know, how, how did you make Chic Records? Well, yeah. here's how we do it. Cut all that other shit and just <laughs> let me play the, the drums because I'm going to start playing hooks. Yeah. And once I started playing all those hooks, then I come back and accompany those hooks and reinforce them. And then what they wound up doing was they wound up having everybody else then re record to me, even though they had already had finished stuff. And it was so, it made me so proud to get phone calls from all my friends, from, you know, from Nathan East and Omar Hakim and everybody called me going, damn, now this is so dope. <laughs> I was so proud. And I was like going, yeah, well, guys, you know what happened is that I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but look, we're cool enough. They know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All, all my life. And and they were just saying, you know, well, when Daft Punk asked me, how do you make sheet records? It was like, whoa. I don't want to hear that, yeah, I don't want to hear a piano part. I don't want to hear that i want to do i i want to do what I do, which is start with the bare essence, and I gotta give you a hook in my guitar part,
0: yeah, I love that, just starting from there, that's great, okay, I have a question because as you're talking through this, you're mentioning so many people, I'm thinking through all these hits you've played on, produced, made, written, you've had commercial success on radio billboard charts you've worked with such incredible people both as a collaborator as a producer you've been an influence for generations of guitar players i was interviewing james valentine from maroon five and we were talking about like for both of us like i grew up influenced by him and you and prince and he's saying i'm influenced by now so there's like this chain of of influence that's like continuing to go downstream which is incredible that's got to feel great. The success or like the, the commercial success must feel great. The friendship network that you have must feel great. I'm curious at this point for you, you're still going, you're still doing the thing and killing it. What does success mean for you today? And how do you feel that sense of accomplishment or success today?
1: It's it's when an artist says to me, wow. I, I, I love this. You know, this, this is at the end of the session, they feel like something has happened. That was special. That something happened. There's before I got there. And after I left mm. now, I don't know whether they're being straight or not. <laughs> they should sure. be like, you know, bullshitting me, but that feeling is pretty hard to bullshit. Yeah. So when I leave the studio, like, You know, so it was my very first time ever meeting Daddy Yankee a few days ago. And, you know, and his his production team, great guys, man, playing skills. They're smoking. They're really smoking. And when I went in there, I said, you know, guys, here's the problem. I'm getting ready to give you about 100 different ideas. And now you got to sift through this for the next God knows how long. Yeah. Um, And then they smiled and they said, but that's our job. That's what we do. I said, "Okay, Mm -hmm. here we go. And uh, and I just kept playing hook after hook after hook, different ways of looking at it. And at the end of the day, Yankee just hugged me and said, "Damn, <laughs> mm. this feels like history." <laughs> and like whether it see, and here's the part that's tricky is that it may not become history, right? Because I t- talked about you know alignment; these things outside of us may not happen. But while we were there in the studio, there was that sense of magic, that sense of camaraderie, and we achieved it. And I achieved that most of the time. I don't always get it, yeah. but I'm fortunate enough to have done it almost, I mean, m- way more than 99% of the time, like almost 100% of the time. And that's a hell of a feeling Yeah, to, to have come from a, Kid, you know, just studying basic rudimentary music, playing the recorder, then the flute, then the piccolo, then the clarinet, and then going to the guitar. Like, oh, wow, I found myself. And as I I was saying earlier, that when you look at this guitar collection, I like to call it the We Are Family Family Foundation collection because now it really is a family of guitars. And more importantly it really is a snapshot of who i am as a person i wouldn't have purchased any of those guitars if they didn't have some kind of deep hidden meaning for me yeah. that i actually thought i was going to use to move music in my life forward yeah and when you see the quality of the guitars and the interest the one thing you'll know is that if you have any respect for my ability To pick something cool out of, um, you know, like let's say a a bin of guitars. You know, when you go shopping for a guitar, like there's 10 of them on the wall or 30 of them on the wall, and you go through each and every one of them, you go, that's the one. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, every one of those guitars in my collection, you go, that's the one, whether it's a D'Angelico, a D'Aquisto, Zephyr Regent, 335, 345, uh, uh, Martin. I mean, I have a Martin from 1928. I have, Wow. I mean, all these like amazing classic, great arch top guitars, but my solid body guitars, you, you can always trace it to a relationship with somebody. Mm. You know, when you see me playing a Jackson, you know, you say to yourself, oh, right. That's probably the first time he played with Steve Vai. Or you see, you know, whatever. You, and and I know it because I got turned on to these instruments because of the person that I was playing with. Because, yeah. you know, you could say, oh, he did that. Oh, right. He did that thing with Dweezil Zappa. Oh, cool. Right. And he, oh, shit. Then he did that thing. And I found out from my guitar tech that when I did the Honey Drippers, uh, the guitar that is that, the superstar of that album, uh, and Robert Plant actually sent me an email the other day saying, you know, now, we actually have a Honey Drippers volume Two, And you're smoking on it. He says, we <laughs> could just release it now. Yeah. I played one guitar on all those tracks. And that guitar I bought that day. I sent my guitar tech out and I said, Give me, you know, well, give me one of those little miniature Gibsons. Like what they, they they cut through and they got that, they got that sort of semi, uh that, that sort of country-esque kind of sound. But the the RB jazz guys use them because they cut. Yeah. Through the big bands, get me one of those. And he came back, and you brought it in, and he said, "No, you played it on every song," and <laughs> I didn't even remember that. He told me, he "said No, I got it. I bought the guitar for you." Um, so every guitar in my collection, uh, with about I think I'm this first auction is 160 guitars. Out of those 160 guitars, every one of them has a story yeah uh, every one of them with about the exception of maybe about 10 has a real story so uh, the the problem is is because i play on so many records and you know what when you look at the track sheets it never says which guitar <laughs> and you know what we we document everything else why don't we say that yeah because if you are going to go back and punch in and make you know and fix a mistake yeah you won't know what guitar you were playing now typically The reason why we didn't do that is because the guitars would be set up in the studio and you pretty much know what it is. Yeah. The the engineer would say, no, you played the red one yesterday. You played the purple one. You played the white one, you know, so we'll know that. So that's not information that we need to keep for a long period of time. But I noticed that in looking at all my old track sheets, as well as the electronic path is documented, the instruments aren't documented. You yeah. don't say that. Oh, it was the Steinway in the Sony Studio one, blah blah blah, or the Steinway at the power station, or the Yamaha at the power station. We yeah. don't do that. Duh! Why don't we do that?
0: <laughs> we got to start now. <laughs> well, I'm going to be at the auction. I'm going to be there. I'm. I got a couple things that I've got my eye on. So, have
1: you seen? Have you seen the catalog?
0: Yes, I have. There are, there's a strat and a telly that I'm, that I'm looking at. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get dibs, but I got to play fair. So I'll be there at the auction.
1: Yeah. The, 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 um, I, I would have to say, um, and it's not because of it being the best strat because although at that point in time if you play every one of my strats you'll see they all are the best strats. Yeah. Um but the Stevie Ray Vaughan one the the black with the gold hardware has a huge place in my heart because the first day he and I met he said, "Hey, let me see your guitars." He played it on one of the songs on Let's Dance. I unfortunately don't remember because it's not on the track sheet. Yeah. Um, and he broke a string when he played it. Years later, when we did the album Family Style, he remembered that strat and he said, No, nah, can you bring that black strat? Go hard? <laughs> he, we bring that strat. He plays it and he breaks the string yet again, but wow. this time we filmed it. So I actually <laughs> filmed, the film. I have him on film breaking that strat string, and it's the same string. And you know, it's like, you know, unfortunately that, you know, he died shortly after that. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's almost a guitar that I almost feel like I want to buy back. Or I, you know, like yeah. I almost wanted to not put it up yeah. uh, for the auction, but I know when I met John Mayer, and he told me the way that he felt about Steve Ray Vaughn, I was like, wow, really? Like, it, mm-hmm. I, you know, when when you are close to an artist, you don't necessarily think that other artists mm. see them in that sort of spiritual. Sure loving way that you see them, you know, you just think that they just like their virtuosity, Yeah. but like John, when he was talking to me about him, I could see that he could almost be, he was almost in touch with Stevie's vibe and, yeah. and Stevie's heart was huge. mean he was like, man, I, I never met anyone like that. You could play like that. And he just was loving. And I mean, imagine a guy coming into record with me and David Bowie. He doesn't know anybody on the session. He's now coming from Texas to come onto my turf, a studio that I basically ruled. I mean, come on, yeah. I mean at that point, I mean, how many hit records that I cut at the Power Station. Yeah. And he walks in and he captures our hearts right away cuz he had uh this is the day before sort of FedEx. He somehow has barbecue sent up from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: to the session.
1: That's Absolutely. incredible. It was totally cool, man. So when Bowie was uh, trying to take everybody's order, Stevie was like, "No, no, 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 I got this covered and <laughs> you know, a huge huge uh, order of ribs from some joint called Sam's barbecue in Austin, Texas shows up.
0: That's incredible.
1: And they, and it came with a calendar and that calendar stayed on the wall at the power station for at least 10 or 15 years.
0: That's amazing. Niall, thanks so much for being with us. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: Peace. You got it, bro. All
0: right. Thanks, man. Really appreciate you being here. Bye-bye. There you have it. What a way to cap off the season. Oh, wow. One of my absolute heroes. I got a lot out of that. I actually, that was a very informative podcast for me. Sometimes uh, the podcast can be very inspirational for me or for the listener, but this one was very informative, which I thought was great. It's also inspirational. Now, we're going to do another season of the show. So smash that subscribe or follow or whatever for wherever you're listening to this. And keep up to date. We're going to be doing another season in a couple months. I'm going to take some time off. Quick reminder. CoreyWongGuitarCourse.com The code is HOLIDAY79 All one word Put that in there, get your discount Buy it for your friend You will be a better guitar player I promise you, I guarantee you If you finish this course, do all the videos I guarantee you, you will be a better guitar player And your practice routines will be more structured If you apply the techniques that I have How about that? How about that? Thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out. Huge thanks to Niall. We'll see you next time. Peace!